I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is a Celebrity Memoir Book Club Secret Edition. Exclusive. Exclusive. <laughs> Interview. Interview. With the author, Caroline Calloway. <laughs> How was that for an intro, you guys? This week... Would you believe it was unrehearsed? <laughs> This week, we are doing an extra special little add-on to our usual podcast. We have brought in the author of this week's memoir to to chat with us, to talk about the truths, the untruths, and, and the verbiage. I just want to reiterate, out of respect for everybody, no, nobody was hurt and nobody will be hurt. This isn't real life. None of these people <laughs> exist. Nothing you're about to hear exists on the planet Earth, so don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, we read Scammer, so if you haven't listened to that podcast episode, I mean, it's out. We're talking about it. We're having a good time. Yeah, listen to the episode, read the book, and then join in and see if we ask the questions that you two had. Yeah. Okay, bye. Ask me. Caroline, all the way from Florida. Welcome to the podcast. You have finally put out your much anticipated first book. It's been, <laughs> dare I say, a decade in the making. How do you feel? <laughs> I, it feels really good. I am um, honestly, this is the only interview that I've genuinely been dreading because I just, I told you this when I sent the book to you. And even when you texted me and said that you liked it, I, said I don't believe you I just like I just knew in my gut that you guys were gonna hate this book but I also really like you guys as people and I'm just a fan of this podcast and I think the PR publicist in me knows that doing this podcast will be great exposure great for book sales but the human in me is really dreading this well, I'm honored to be considered part of the machine. We've never been on the uh, the industry side of things we've never been good for anybody but I will say, I want to say we did like it, and but also I think you very smartly set us up for the worst. You sent us a text. You said you're not going to like it. It's like postmodern poetry. I mean, Ashley went, oh my God, she's going to put out like random garbledygook. But this was, it was cohesive. It was readable. And we would recommend it to a friend. We feel it's a great summer read. Yeah, I, to be honest, based on your text, thought it was going to be like 80 pages of disjointed sentences like arranged on the page in that like kind of a Cleo Wade type way. And I, yeah. Yeah. And this was a real treat, especially based on what I was expecting, but I really did. We really enjoyed it. We found it extremely compelling, but of course we're us. We have questions. Yeah. We have some things we need to say. And I think before we even start the proper interview about this book, we need to address the last time of your, you were on our podcast, which I don't know if you were aware people didn't love you. <laughs> oh my God. I am so aware. I, it made me really rethink trying to um, talk about memoir with other people. Cause it's, a, it's my favorite topic in the world and I get so excited about it. And I have not shared that love with anyone since. <laughs> well, the main thing we wanted to talk about is something that a story that we have tried to retell so many times over the last couple of years. So you reached out to us on Instagram. You were like, I want to defend Lena Dunham. And we were like, that's huge. We're thrilled. Come on up. You came with the notes after listening to the Lena Dunham episode. And then you later revealed to us that you actually thought we were a different podcast altogether. You thought we were a celebrity book club because you said you were good friends with Stephen um horseman is that his last name 
I didn't think that you guys were a different book club. Like, not I, or, only did you say it to us, but if we pull up the Instagram caption, <laughs> you said, and I quote, "I actually thought they were my friend's podcast, which has an eerily similar name." And then to prove that you thought you were doing someone else's podcast, you posted a photo of him from the Red Scare live show, and you're like, "This is where we met the night we met," and it was actually a photo of a different man altogether. <laughs> which can you explain what happened there? I'll, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I thought that you guys just all worked on the same podcast. Like I knew that you guys were the hosts and I'd listened to your episode on Lena Dunham. I was very much aware that like Steven, I wasn't going to be recording with Steven. If anything, I've, I included Steven in the caption because I felt so bad because what really became clear is that I had never listened to a single episode of Steven's podcast because if I had, I would know that he's talking, he's, he's a co-host. And somehow I thought that he was like your guys' producer and that he'd be there in the apartment and that I'd see him again. And I guess I just felt um, guilty and a little uh, sad for him. And I guess I just, I just wanted to give him a shout out and I didn't want to make an enemy of him. And I didn't want, if you guys maybe said something on your podcast about how I thought that, or you guys posted about it first, I just didn't want to start beef with him. So I, tried to nip it in the bud and put it in my caption. But I knew that you guys were the hosts and I knew this podcast. I really, what I didn't know was the other, I like, I still don't know the name of their podcast. Isn't it Celebrity Memoir Book Club? Like how, how many variations of that name can there be? Like, I'm sorry. There are two variations, but three podcasts total. So I understand. And I do actually yeah. feel like just trying to cover your own tracks with a relationship, another relationship, makes the most sense <laughs> yeah it, it's it's not even like we're best friends it's just like a professional contact that i didn't want to fuck up i understand that completely it was funny to watch you then post a photo of somebody else entirely and be like my good friend steven who i guess i do not know what he looks like. <laughs> well that's because i thought you guys were gonna throw me under the bus and i just wanted to beat you to it i listen i respect Fair. it we're I bitches. Not trust us either. <laughs> I will say something that I was pleasantly surprised about in this book is at the end, you do a lot of name dropping of secrets we had kept from that day. Yes. yes. The Margaret Qualley punching herself in the face over the Pete Davidson breakup. We had so many people DM us and be like, why is Caroline defending Lena like she is on her payroll? And we were like, I don't know. It can now come out that you were in fact somewhat on the payroll. <laughs> You know, something I have found really funny over the years is watching all these tweets, some of which you have retweeted as recently as like five hours ago of people making gifts of like how much the celebrity memoir book club girlies must have hated having Caroline on their podcast. And it's like a gif of you guys looking so bored and so disinterested in me or rolling your eyes. But like in real life, like I like you guys. Like we go to plays together. Like we have dinner. Like you keep my secrets. Like my God, actually, like you came to my going away parties, and I was hurt when you didn't come, Claire, because I did, I did go. I was there. I did go. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was so on drugs. I was so on drugs. No, problem. I was high for like ten days. I don't remember saying goodbye to you in person, and I'm sorry. That's fully on me. That's not me trying to preserve a relationship. That's just fully my L. And I will say, we have said time and time again to anyone who DMs us about it, who says, like, how could you, like, after she was so rude to you. And I always say, in person, we didn't have this contentious back and forth. And I do think that, unfortunately, I think that there were times where we hugely disagreed. But I think if you listen to our podcast, me and Claire disagree all the time. I don't think 
that disagreeing with someone constitutes hatred. I actually really like when there's someone in my life that I can have a conversation with where we don't always walk away having the exact same opinion on everything. But I will say, um, God, I actually lost my train of thought entirely. I'll um, say, I do think people were like, oh, she was so condescending to you. How could you stand it? And to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And I think me and Ashley had no problem watching you try to condescend to us. I feel very confident in my English degree. I was like, it's okay. I wasn't hurt. I'm realizing now, like um, exploring these feelings a bit more. I've had just been so busy with press that I haven't really been able to like sit down and examine why I've been dreading this interview so much. And I realize it's not because I dread talking to you because as I said, we hang out in person and apparently both of you came to say goodbye to me in New York, allegedly. But like I, I had a great time on that podcast, but it ended up becoming like sort of a sad memory for me because I just got like, I just felt like so dislocated in my own memories, seeing so many people take like what was a really fun afternoon for me and be like, you're like, you're so unlikable. They hate you. Everyone hates you. And I was like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I had, I will, we will go on the record and say we had a pleasant time. We were shocked at how angry you made people. My own dad called me like irate because he felt like you had been so rude to me. And I was like, I don't know, sitting there. That was not our lived experience. Yeah. And we have yeah. said that. We have said time and time again to people who DM us that that is not the, like, we didn't have the experience sitting there that, like, we were being attacked. And people keep saying, how could you let her attack you in your own home? And I said, I didn't know I was being attacked. I thought we were drinking wine. <laughs> you know what? Whatever. It's water under the bridge. But I really, if I have one goal for this podcast, it is that I hope that my experience of it in real time and my relationship with you guys will not just be totally misconstrued afterwards. But I don't know, maybe that's too much to hope for. A girl can dream. The train of thought that I lost earlier is I think the thing that is stressful and very much like contextualizes some pieces of your book is that there are a lot of things that like kind of no matter what you do or say, people are going to look for a version of it that they're mad at. And I think that hopefully there are parts of your book that like help shift these pieces out of people's brains. But like people do listen to you hoping to to say like, can you believe what she said? And that is so hard and frustrating. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I feel it shifting a little bit, but like, you know, when you're at negative 300 and you shift a hundred points forward, you're still at negative 200. Yeah. So should we get into the book now that we've- Yeah, let's get into here? it. Let's get into it. I'm sitting down. I have a Celsius. I truly wish I was on enough, as many drugs as I was the night you allegedly said goodbye to me because I feel like I'll need it. But let's do it. Let's do it. I guess we'll just start easy peasy on a plate. Who was this book for? What were you hoping it would accomplish? When somebody puts this book down, who is the reader? And what are you hoping they now think of you, Caroline Calloway? What is the feeling? I had to totally divorce myself from what someone would think of me. I had to let go of the shame of if they'd think I was worse. I had to let go of wanting them to like me more as a person. I What I really want them to feel is like very much about them and not about me. I just want them to feel less alone. Like I want it to be that sort of J.D. Salinger has this great quote that like, you know, you've I'm going to butcher it, but you know, you've read a great book when you finish the last page and you close the covers and all you want is to be able to call up the author on the phone. 
not because you necessarily like them. This quote ended, but like not because you like them, but just because you want to keep talking to them, which I think is different than like, you know, being a supporter of someone. I think it's just I it's just books are an antidote to like a very specific kind of loneliness, or at least like that's what they are to me. And I love memoir so much because it's like the stories are true. And so you you feel like you've been hanging out with real people instead of, you know, the, the cast of a, a fantasy world in a kingdom that never existed. So I, I feel like that that antidote is even more powerful. So I hope people just feel less alone when they finish it. I have to say, it's so interesting what you just said, because I do think what's unique about you and your book is that both are true. I think you are being honest, but your truth isn't a fantasy world. <laughs> like, yeah. even, like, I do believe, and I think we're going to get into this a lot. Like, what is truth to you? Do you believe what you're saying? Because I've had, we have a couple of points where I'm like, this isn't what it's really like to experience these things. But I'm like, is this Caroline's truth or is she still projecting what she thinks people want to be true? And even in this call, it's interesting to watch you create narratives because you're like, we've had dinners, we've gone to plays. I mean, we went to one dinner, one play. (laughs) But now I feel like in your mind, we have this long friendship. And I do believe that that is your reality. And that is like the tension that people don't know how to position themselves across is like, it's kind of true, but not really. But like, do you believe it? Are you trying to trick us? Are you trying to trick yourself? Like, what is your reality? <laughs> you know, I think I, with us, how I would genuinely consider it is I'd put you on the spectrum of like professional contacts who I would go to a dinner and a play with. You're a professional contact who I would want to see no posting outside of professional stuff. Um, and it's tough because in the book, something that really fascinates me is like magical realism within memoir, like the stuff about um, when I describe my friend as being that like invisibility cloak shimmers and hubcap reflections or when I talk about like stepping into like the tear in time, um, like I'm I'm very something I want to do in future books is like bend that even more. But I think in terms of like what the truth is, like, I don't know. Do you think it's crazy for me to think that we're like professional contacts who I would hang out with in a non-professional no, situation? But I do think that, that you are a type of person that I've come across in real life who has this like exciting fantasy that's being projected. And I think, as you said in this memoir, and you say it on this call in this memoir multiple times, like a memoir is supposed to be your truth. And I guess you know, truth, obviously an ephemeral made up thing, maybe like everybody has their own truth. But I think what people are always trying to pin you for is lying. But like, are you lying? Like you talk specifically in here about going to parties at St. A's and we're the same age. I went to Columbia. I went to parties at St. A's. I would hardly say, oh, everybody there was quoting Paul Thomas Anderson and wearing the appropriate garb for like a 1700s fairy pixie party. I I think I went in jeans and a t-shirt and I don't even know what Paul Thomas Anderson wrote, to be honest. Me neither. But when you say like everyone there did that and that was what was expected, I'm like, is that your truth? Or is this like tapping into the captions of projecting this fantasy world? And I think it's important because a big plot point of your book is you couldn't write this fake version of We Were Like, but yet it feels like so much of what you're writing still is this fantasy that you claim at one point would have killed your soul to have put out. Yeah, no, I want to be very clear. And that's a really wonderful, thoughtful question and really well put. And I I love it when people ask me questions that make me 
define myself to them more than I ever have internally. Um, so thank you for such a thoughtful question. The answer is honestly, I think when it comes to pinning down truth, it it's a it's a item by item sort of thing. With the fantasy stuff of St. A's, and like, yes, no one, I'll be the first to admit, no one wore frilled Elizabethan collars there. And that is something that I feel like as a memoirist, but also don't you feel like that the chapter, like an impressionist painting, if you stand back from it, yes, if you examine the brush strokes, it's messy and it looks like globs and you're like, that's not how I remember it. But if you stand back, you're like, yeah, that's a pond with water lilies. Like I do think that chapter 24 beautifully captures St. A's and I stand by that. And honestly, I was just working under a page count of, I gave myself a maximum of 150 pages. And I think I actually like went over it by a couple pages, but- um, 158, but you got real close. Yeah, yeah. I see, but I was like, I was really, really trapped for word count to keep this as like a day book. And so I made an executive call in chapter 24 to just, and I made those calls several times when I talk about fancy shit, where I would describe something- in a way that I felt was like true to the spirit of the place and that the like captured the place in the minimum amount of pages possible. But like, I would never say that about something that's like, I would never be that imprecise with my brushstrokes if it were something that's like a pivotal plot point. Like whether or not people actually wore Elizabethan collars at St. A's is irrelevant to the to my story, to the the main themes with the book, to the important things that ever happened to me. Like I would only do that with throwaway details. And you asked one more part to your question that I forgot, which so, was. Um, okay. Here's like, just to clarify it and like hone it in and then ask the second part of the question. So we always say, I don't think like the detailed truths of a memoir are actually that important. It's about the memories and like capturing the feeling that you felt. And so that is what you were doing. However, so you're saying the difference between the book that you wrote and then the book that you oh, couldn't yes, write yes, 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 was yes, yes, that yes. the plot they wanted you to write felt completely untrue. Yes. And but here's the thing. It's not because I don't like writing about the beautiful stuff in my life. I fucking love that shit. Like I, 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 I wax poetic about Elizabethan roughs because I love it because I you love I, beautiful sentences. Because I love beautiful sentences. But the thing is, I also love dark, twisted, fucked up sentences that no one else will say that actually feel like profane and ill-advised to write. And I love those two things equally. And, you know, if they had wanted me to make a book that was only the darkness and to leave out all the beauty, all the Elizabethan roughs, I would have felt as trapped and as suffocated and as um, just as much of a sellout as I did by agreeing to write only the beautiful stuff and not talking about, you know, my pill addiction or the hoarder home or my father's suicide. So that's, that's the answer to that question. I just want to cap that off by saying like, I accept that answer. (laughs) I think that that's very valid. The whole, this is how I felt because, you know, I went into that same building and I would have had different details. And if someone had fact checked me, the details would have been different than how I remember them. But my experience of that 
those parties were not somebody who went in with awe and wonder and like, isn't this some amazing step into an old world where being born rich is the most important, beautiful thing you can have. And I think actually something very brave that you do in this book that me and Ashley appreciated is you have a line in here saying like one of the worst things you can be is an upper middle class girl who's well off, but wants to be well offer. And I do think one of your qualities that people can question and like or dislike, but it works is that you are in awe and you do love fancy shit, the upper class of society. Um, And the thing is, the thing that we like about that is that everyone likes the fancy shit and they just don't, it's not flattering to say it. Like, it's not flattering to say like, I watched Gossip Girl because I want to know that world. Don't you wish that I like that in my heart of hearts, my like dream to just be like Mother Teresa? Like sometimes I'm just like, why can I just like be that instead? Instead of like this being my all consuming purpose in this world. Like it's so unlikable. Yeah. And I have to think people respond to the capitalism differently. Like some people, I think me and Ashley are much more cynical, like are much more likely to roll their eyes. You, we've decided are in like a rare spot where you worship it, but also are willing to burn every bridge to expose it and exploit it, which I don't think many people will do. Most people know the rules of don't take the photos, don't name names, because otherwise we won't get to stay here. And you were willing to like kind of burn shit to the ground to be a part of it for a moment and make your own name, which is unique. Yeah, I don't give a fuck. But you know, so wait, before the next question, there is one thing I want to add. You know, someday... Well, I'm making day books and I'm pressed for page count and I'm really giving myself a 150 page limit. I just want to put out there that I am fully aware that I'm making impressionist paintings and that as long as the detail is not essential to the plot, I'll be more poetic with it. But when I write a longer book, like, and we were like, I really, I mean, I'll never know until it happens. And my God, at my rate, it'll be what, another century like I hope modern medicine can keep me alive long enough to write books at this fucking rate but um but hopefully I'll get better at it and now that I'm in Florida I mean I'm just working 12 hour days on only this but um but I do hope that in my longer books that I can be more precise with those details um but honestly at the end of the day in a 150 page book you just have to like you know do something that captured the essence of it even if you sincerely mean it when I say I accept your answer I do think with you and we'll get we have more things that we have questions about you live in this fantasy world and I think the internet's obsession with you is how much of it is a con like people are obsessed with you being a scammer is it all like the man behind the curtain how much of is it of it is that you just like live in this delusion and like are you fooling us like are you and I think that that is kind of what people want to know and I do find it interesting Give me an example of something that you think is like, ask me something and I'll tell you whether or not it's, I believe it as one would believe a delusion Okay, or if I believe something else. One easy one that is just like a detail that we have to fact check. You mentioned going from DC to Yale every night for a a year or so. This to me... (laughs) No, I don't. I didn't go every night. I went like once or twice a month. Still a lot. I I was going to say once or twice ever. And this was something that logistically I mean, to I, me I was just like. I didn't do it for like, a whole year. My internship on a, was only. My internship. Okay. Let's break it down. My internship was what? Six, five months? Going once, twice a month? That's a minimum of five times, maximum 12 times I ever did that in my life. 
12 is still a lot, but I will let you have that. I've, it, the way it was written to me felt like you were doing it daily. Every night? No, never. Oh, I'll, I'll, fix, I'll fix that in further editions. Thanks for flagging that. That's some language I can clean up. I, I will <laughs> say, though, to do, I've done it at all more than once was fascinating. Can we talk about like where you're at in your headspace? What was calling? This was one of the chapters in the book that I actually found to be the wildest. The idea of like sleeping in the floor at Yale to be more like romantic and exciting than having a bed nearby. Like, let's dive into it. Okay. First of all, I, it wouldn't have made me feel worse and defeated the whole exercise of the purpose to stay anywhere, but inside those beautiful castles. Like it wasn't about having a bed. It was about feeling like I was included and inside the gate as opposed to like some loser who had to stay at a hotel in a comfortable bed and didn't wake up with back problems. Like I just, my priorities for comfort were like fully on the emotional end and like not on the physical end. And, you know, I think for people who grew up in like physical discomfort as a child, um, like I'm, I'm can sleep anywhere. Like I slept in like the grossest places, like in that hoarder home. And like, I really, to just be in like a nice clean room where like everything is like put away. Like it's feels very safe and cozy. Like my standards are very low for my own personal comfort, but um, what the, why did I go? Is that the question? Yeah, I guess to me, I'm talking about emotional comfort. I don't know that everybody would agree with you to go and spend time at a place you've been rejected from is emotionally comfortable <laughs> to be like alone prowling about. Well, my internship was with this nonprofit that, it was like, um, it mainly helped like veterans with PTSD. And I think it was called Wounded Warriors, if someone wants to. Oh, yeah. Do you know, know it? I know it. Yeah. Right. Oh, no like way. Really big I, organization. Wait, they got really big. They were so small when I was working for them. And they got huge. And then they were actually like marred with scandal, ironically, that the top guys were taking like 90% of the money to do like helicopter drop-ins and stuff. It was one of the nonprofits where like all the money was staying at the top and very little was reaching. What? This is crazy. Um, obviously why they hired me. I was director of scams. Um, <laughs> but no, I was, I was an intern and I was just, I think I was drawn to it because it was mainly helping people who were my dad's age, who actually wanted mental health care. Um, so I think I was like enacting some sort of like, you know, deep trauma response by even angling for that internship in the first place. Cause like, it doesn't really help the resume. Like I'm applying as like a history of art student. Like I'd be better off for college admissions at a museum, but I was really drawn to that. And I, God fucking damn it. Did I hate working there? Not cause like the, not because I hated working with these people. In fact, I never got to meet a single veteran. I was behind a desk. Nine of there was a veteran. There might not have been one. Foreshadowing. There were no veterans we go. But I was behind a, a desk at like a nine to five. I had to wear black pencil skirts and white silk blouses. And I just felt like I had just always wanted to be a writer and artist. And I wanted to write about these very specific worlds that I wasn't born into. And I just felt, and I had just broken up with Andy. So I was really, or I should say Andy had broken up with me. So I was very sad about that. And I was just, I wasn't on antidepressants yet. I hadn't discovered Adderall yet. 
I was just lost and I was sad and I just wanted to feel happy and just beauty made me happy. And just, you know, being around Yale, cause it's really like not, I really can't emphasize enough to you guys, like how much the visuals of that place and, and the lore of it, like it just lights my insides up. And I just wish that I was like more, I just wish I was excited about something more ex- societally accepted. Um, The irony is that it's perfectly acceptable to love rich, beautiful things. Our whole society is built around it. Like as long as you don't say it out loud, like as long as you, as long as you don't say the quiet part out loud, but you're not the only one obsessed with Yale. They get like a hundred thousand applicants a year for 20 spots or something like everybody's obsessed. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like a freak of nature. um, When I talk about just like how my life dream was to has always been to write about these worlds. And so I would just go to Yale and I would just, it would honestly, I feel a little tender when people ask me about if I'm delusional, because I think there's so many things there. One, like Natalie did such a good job of convincing the world that, you know, I was incapable of telling my own story and that only she could tell it. And, you know, when we were doing those meetings in LA, like Mindy Kaling wouldn't meet with us because she, her team literally was like, well, we don't see like what Caroline would offer this story, like what she could offer this story about my life. Like, oh my God, like that's, that's so heartbreaking. And so I really, I really uh, bristle at like the idea that I'm not self-aware because I think I, am. Um, But that being said, like at times, I think delusion has been a very powerful tool that I've like implemented to varying degrees of self-awareness in the moment. And I think just going to Yale and being close to the buildings. And I'd honestly just listen to Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero song Home on repeat and just walk around and I just drink so much coffee. Like I'd chug it on the train. I'd, I'd like, I'd I'd pee in bushes because like I couldn't get into like bathrooms like it was totally fucking feral and I'm sure that's the clip that's like gonna go viral on TikTok but um like I mean I was acting like a drunk girl but like I was just wired up on caffeine and a desperation to feel anything but like crushing sadness and I just enjoyed going there and just feeling close to it. And it just, it honestly, maybe it shouldn't have given myself hope, but I just, for a night, I got to pretend like everything would be okay. And that I would get to write about, you know, collegiate castles someday. And that, you know, I wouldn't have to go sit at a fucking office job for the next 12 hours and try not to like fall asleep. Something I find very interesting in this book is that anytime you talk about like the true tragedies that are unique to your life, I mean, your dad's death the fact that it came right on the heels of what natalie's essay did to you i mean that is a memoir that is memoir worthy and yet every time you write about that part of your life you say things like now that's just bad writing that's kind of a bad first draft i spent my whole life trying to avoid if i if i ever came across that plot in a book i'd go nope unbelievable untrue ramp up scammer versus things that you think are worthy of writing memoir about which are often things that you've concocted whole cloth the grandeur of saint a's walk around Yale like you're a student there. What are you trying to do with that language in this book that like your real life is like some boring hack memoir, whereas your fantasy, which is very fairy tale-y and has been written about time and time again. I mean, the princess, 
who marries into wealth. Like that is like a pretty tropey standard plot line. Why do you find that so much more interesting than your own life? One thing I wanted to draw from the book is that you literally say a few times when you're following this romantic version of a life that you have sort of invented and like one of these really desirable, like wealthy scenarios, like going with Andy's family to the beach or going to Yale for the night instead of going home to a room, you say, I have to like go where the memoir is back home is not where the memoir is. Do you feel that you almost like wrote your first memoir and then built your life to to okay. Live. Wow. These are two totally questions. different questions. Yeah. Yeah. Th- oh, wow. This is a lot. Yeah. Um, the first question, um, you're, you're quoting a passage from, I think it's the end of chapter two that you're quoting. Exactly. And so it's very much like, and the opening of chapter two is one of the realest things that I say, which is, you know, I, I, I avoided writing a book for my whole life by avoiding first drafts. I couldn't tolerate my own mediocrity for more than a few pages at a time, the length of, oh, say, an Instagram caption, like something about fearing bad writing. And so part of why I make that glib punchline there is really just to return to the joke of the opening of chapter two. And I would never write about my life. I'd be like, ha bad writing in when I'm actually writing about it, I do that honestly to like ease the reader into the pool. Cause it's a lot to, I had to grapple with the fact that like, it's not like I can do a big reveal that my father's body was found two days after the article dropped. Everyone knows. And like, at least everyone who's fucking buying this book knows Mm -hmm. like it's self published. They're not picking it up in a bookstore. And so I had to find a way to introduce, to get over to to just get cat out of the bag we all know what the plot is but do it in a way that still left a big heft for emotional reveal and i really disagree and oh my god i'm i'm sure i'm just the most unlikable disrespectful person ever and your dad is going to absolutely shit talk me read me to filth after he hears this episode but i just disagree that i don't give equal weight to my my like the big things in my life. Like I'm just trying to do the math in my head. So like I say that once in chapter two, and then I think I make one more bad writing recall in like one line at the end of one of the early chapters before 10. But then when you look at like where the meat of like the plot is, like Mm -hmm. we've all seen that little like, um, you know, the rising action graph where it's like going up up, 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 peaks, and then like the denouement, the falling action, like all of the most important things that have happened to me emotionally, like are the climax of the book. It's the Adderall addiction. It's the betrayal by Natalie. It's my father's suicide. I mean, chapters 40 through, I think I jumped back into the like present day in like 64, I think, but like chapters 40 through 64 are solid awful things that are like my real life. So yeah, I do make that glib joke in chapter two. And I think I do another recall and say like, I don't know, chapter nine, chapter 12, something like that. But, um, and I intertwine that glamor throughout all the dark parts, but like the heft of the book and not just like the numbers of those 24 chapters, but like where they fall in the book. Those are the climax chapters. Those are what the book's about is about the heavy stuff. And so I don't think people should be, um, distracted by like, uh, you know, a glib joke in chapter two. 
I guess for me, and I see what you're saying, you're like, I'm using it as a device. And of course you do talk about going back and the maggots. And like, I thought you talked about the part of your dad very beautifully, the story of the Vietnamese man at the funeral. I actually really appreciated the way you spoke about him, but I guess it's hard to decouple how you wrote and being glib with how you lived your life for so many years. And since nobody who's reading this book doesn't know you as a person, we do know you as someone who for almost a decade did try to deny that part of you. And when you're making this joke, like, well, I would never write about that. That's bad writing. And then you go on to talk about like the beautiful halls of Yale. It feels hard to believe that you're just doing that for us because for so many years, you did in fact try to erase that part of yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like when you make that line, I could go to the Martha's Vineyard or I could go back to Falls Church. My memoir wasn't in Falls Church. Like that was a choice you made. And to see it reflected in writing, I know there's part of you that's kidding, but is no, I mean, surely there must be part of you that did feel that way, that like, those aren't the parts you want to write about. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, I know. But I think I say flat out in that same chapter, in chapter two, I think I say, you know, I could be their brand safe heroine and get paid big time, or I could be honest about um, my pill addiction and suicide and the things that cause me shame. I, or I could be honest, mm -hmm. I think is what I said. I could be their brand safe heroine and get paid big time. Or I could be honest. And then I say, like, I use the verb get to do some other play out some other scenario. Like I try to address that straight on in chapter two, that like, I was ashamed of those parts of my life. Mm -hmm. So I didn't write about them. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I think I address that head on in that very same chapter. I guess I think as somebody who has like followed you online for a long time, part of the question that audience have for you is like how much of your vulnerability is coming from a genuine place of wanting to share and help and have people feel seen and how much is coming from like back against the wall, cats out of the bag, anything that the internet already knows, I better play up anyway. Mm, bro. I mean, like there is so much I shared in this memoir that like no one was asking me to share. Like it comes from a place of wanting to be vulnerable and trying to make the best art possible. And about the like, oh, cats up already out of the bag about like what my father's suicide and Natalie's betrayal. That is like, of course, I want to write about that. Those are like the, the biggest events that shaped me. Of course, I'm not doing that to like appease people. I'm dying to write about that. Fair enough. Like, I think that your early years are really interesting parts of your life. And I think that, you know, the way that your family has shaped you and those little bits that we get, which I understand, like lead up into like this climax of the book. I think that kind of what I think, I'm not sure if this is what Claire was saying, but kind of what I think you were saying is that a lot of these moments that we get are moments that we've like seen teased online and that or that we've heard about online and we've heard about already that are kind of expanded. And I think the majority of this book is kind of an expansion of stories that we've gotten a bit. And then throughout the book, you tease further expansion yes. of these stories. Will there ever be a book, do you think, that sort of exists a bit divorced from a response to the yeah. internet yeah like, do you think yes, there's absolutely but I think the reason that I want to make day books now is the fact of the matter is like I have to respond to the internet it would be I it would be truly delusional and divorced from reality if I wrote a book as if I were just like no one had any questions and everything on the internet was fine and like I can just make whatever book I want and people will accept it no I have to dig myself out of this hole that I dug for myself, but also that Natalie 
buried me in. And I, that is why I plan to make several day books first, because I don't want to have to, um, I don't want to have to be so centered around the Natalie drama or the internet in, and we were like, and the Cambridge trilogy. So, but in order to get to a place where I can do that from a non-delusional connected to reality standpoint, uh, the fact of the matter is I have to grapple with the real world. And I'm doing that by addressing the internet and the Natalie drama in these day books. You know what? I feel like a better way for me to phrase my question would be is like something that I found interesting is there's not a ton of your childhood in here. And as someone who's read a lot of memoirs, I'd say a lot of people focus like a full third of the book on their upbringing, their childhood, how it made them feel, the parts of their personality that were formed, the ways they did not feel loved. I would say, even though we kind of get a sense of your childhood, it's covered in less than three chapters, I'd say. It's given maybe four or five pages. And so I think when I say like, how much are you being vulnerable because you want to versus because it's already out there? As you said, like, we know that your father's dead. Like we watched it play out in your life. I remember vividly those desert Instagrams when you were out with that guy and the butterfly emoji use. Like we watched you happen in real life. We watched you experience this in real life in real time. And now I feel like we're covering a lot of the things that we've already seen happen. Yeah. Well, I just think if I wrote a book about my childhood right now, it wouldn't sell as well. It wouldn't do as much for my reputation. I think there would be for every person who's like glad to know about my childhood. I think there would be five more people being like, this is not what we wanted. Give us what we want. And honestly, I, I have 10 ideas for day books that I want to make. And, you know, I'll be happy if I make five of them. Um, But at this rate in Florida, I already have drafts for the next two done. And, you know, one is my Cambridge captions, which I think people, the biggest misconception about me is that I didn't write every single word of those Cambridge captions alone. And so I fully own the copyright to them. And then one is it's, it's if you're complaining that scammer is like <laughs> stuff you've seen before, it's going to be I am Caroline Calloway, that essay that I used to raise $50,000. And I'll really see that as like the ending of the Natalie centered books. But I feel like that's what I need to make now. And so those are three ideas for the 10 day books. And one of the 10 day books, the last one that I would release before I disappear for hopefully with all my money from the day books for five to six years to make and we were like, um, it's a book called Gotchall, and it's going to be just about my childhood. So I've, while I'm writing this, I'm just very conscious of the books that I want to write in the future. And Gotchall by Caroline Calloway will be just about the years where my last name was Gotchall. Something we talk about a lot on the podcast is you're an interesting writer because you have like perfect market research. <laughs> and so I kind of think the answer I'm hearing here is like these books are a way of clearing your name getting rid of the gunk, like clearing out the gutters to allow you to write exactly what you want to write in the future. And you're saying, this is the book that was to respond to the things that people want to know right now. Yes. Listen, I don't want to say it's like clearing my name because seriously, I can't emphasize this enough. And I'm sure there's so many crazy revelations in this book that you can attest to this, that this is not like a, a book that's supposed to, I don't know, make people see me as a saint. Like, The idea of clearing one's name is often connected to innocence. And that's not something I'm trying to accomplish with this book. I'm just trying to respond to the reality of my life. This is the scammer by Caroline Calloway, given where my life is now. 
this is not a book I should put out in 10 years. Well, that's what I think I meant when I said like clear the gutters. It's more like a fact. Like, yeah, this yeah. Is clear what the gutters to is know much right better. now. But yeah, like this is just the appropriate book for right now. Totally. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly how I would title it. It is like an appropriate book right now. And I think that answers one of our questions, which we were like, do you think this book could stand on its own? And you're like, your answer would be no. And it's not even meant to. It's meant to stand in tandem with oh, no, public I, opinion of me. No, 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 no. Not that at all. I think this is a book that totally stands on its own. I hope years from now, people will look back and like consider this like my juvenilia and an interesting first book. But I, it came about because of just the... I mean, the timing, the, I don't know the word I'm looking for. It's, this book is, is the right book for right now, but I do think it stands alone. I think it's a great book. So speaking of the timing of this book, so you mentioned, I mean, one of my biggest questions throughout was why now when you answer it in the book, you say, because Natalie's about to put out a book and I have to beat her and you did. Congratulations. And you do beat her up a bit in this book while also really there are a number of characters in this book that you refer to as the nouns the roommate the the man my manager and my therapist yeah totally the journalist yeah the journalist yes your decision to include natalie as a main character of this book when she could have been one of the nouns do you feel that you had to do that because in some ways it feels like you could have nouned her and when you mention sort of putting her in a cage of your name and turning the lock or she put herself in a cage, but you turned the lock in some ways by making her a main character in this book, you have like put part of yourself in that cage with her. Like you've tied you two together further. Part of myself in that cage until I have more books. Like I'm in that cage. I agree. Or a part of myself is, I don't think my whole, like, you know, not a single article that's come out about this book there have been three reviews and countless other articles not a single one has used a photo of natalie natalie's only press used a photo of me to promote it so like the the fact that i don't have to use anyone else's face but my own to promote my book is i think a real testament to like however much a piece of me is in that cage it's it's quite small but i agree with you it's in there um but i don't think it's locked in like natalie is locked in there. Like I would take a real absolute uh, deus ex machina plot twist to get her out of that. But like, all I need to do is like, yeah, I'll publish. I'll stay. I'll leave that piece of myself in that cage while I publish. I am Caroline Calloway and the Cambridge captions, because that will still be, it takes time um, for people to, to read books, to change their minds, to just for the world to move on. Um, but part of why I did it was I, I also like need to heal and how, how, how I heal is writing. And like, I don't think I'll ever be capable of writing a book where she is a noun and is like, I mean, I could have written one now, but I would have been forcing myself not to say things that I wanted to say. And now that I've said them, like, I've, I don't know. I, I, I even just like seeing her use me again to promote her book. Like, I honestly, I felt so it was such a different experience than seeing my face and her byline in the cut the first time around. It was like, God, you are so sad. Like, uh, good luck. Like, I'm so sorry. Nobody cares. Like I'm doing my own thing and I'm on my own path. And I think a lot of that is a testament to like, I, I felt so defined by her the first time around. I felt like she had stolen my soul. Like, you know, and now I like, just don't like, 
and I think a lot of that healing comes from writing. And I want to, I want to fully plumb the depths of what writing about that can do for me. And then I want to leave on and not touch it. And I'm fine having, you know, my pinky finger trapped in that cage with her for the next two years while I do it. Fair enough. I actually agree with you. I do think that you're always one book away from getting rid of her name in your life and she will never, <laughs> never. Okay. I wanted to, I mean, obviously, you know, what we have not talked about with the Natalie thing and we want to leave that till the end. Cause I feel like that is the biggest reveal of this book. That is the new piece of information that this book comes out with. So we kind of want to leave it at the end. First, we want to talk about your Adderall addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, something interesting about this book to me is that you really do come from a place of people don't believe me. And I think that's valid. And I feel like even when we've had this conversation, I've been like, oh, how are we supposed to believe you? And I can tell that that's a sensitive topic for you. Um, I think as a reader, and I'm speaking on behalf of what I assume listeners want to know, I feel that so much of this book focused on convincing people that you were in fact addicted to Adderall. And I have to wonder if that's understanding the audience's questions because of course Adderall is an addictive sub substance. I think we all, I do think it's tricky because everyone took Adderall in college and we're like, well, aren't we all addicted to some degree? This book, I'm like, oh yeah, she was addicted to Adderall. It is a controlled substance. She was addicted. People get addicted. I think though the bigger questions people are saying, but does that Adderall addiction explain the qualities and characteristics that you were being accused of? And I think that that for me was the missing gap in the Adderall chapters is that you're like trying to prove so badly that no, I was in the throes of addiction and I don't question you at all. I fully believe you. But my question is when you got out, when you got sober, what do you think about you changed that we were accusing you of that you were blaming on the Adderall addiction? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Name some of the things that people were accusing me of. I think the main thing is about friendship, the way that you as a friend, when you were addicted to Adderall were not present. I mean, the biggest story during that time is Natalie getting locked out in Amsterdam or wherever you guys were. And that story, again, like we, we see both sides of it, but I think overall, just the fact that like you not being, you, I mean, you say in the book, that was the last time I was a good friend to Natalie after I like lost myself to an Adderall addiction for five years. Um, and we've seen sort of like chaotic and, you know, we've seen chaotic behavior from you and we don't have mentions of friendship after that time. So do you feel that it's all attributed to an Adderall addiction or like, are there elements of your behavior during that time that like, that are just part of your personality? And I'm not saying you're a bad friend or I'm not saying like these are bad qualities, but what qualities do you think are specifically the Adderall addiction? And that would also even tag on one of the big things is that you say, I couldn't finish that book because I was addicted to Adderall. I think now it's been sort of shifted to, I couldn't finish that book because it wasn't who I really was. But, you know, of course you famously took many a year, many a sober year to not finish a book as well. <laughs> I think, oh, let me charge my phone. Of course my phone's on charge. I mean, this is a great example. Like my phone is still on 10%. I'm still disorganized. Like I'm still, Adderall addiction didn't like make me into a different person. It just made all my existing flaws that still exist in like an, amphetamine sober life just uh, it just amplified them like it didn't create anything new in me and so it's hard to talk about like who I am sober like I still have all the same flaws like I'm I'm disorganized I I'm ambitious to the point of dreaming too big I'm bad at follow-through I'm unself-disciplined I'm 
um, I can be sort of self-isolating sometimes. Like I don't need people if I have books, um, which is maybe makes me a bad friend in the sense that like, I, I'm still not great at responding to texts. Um, I can be self-obsessed because, you know, my whole, I feel my whole purpose in life is so around me, me, me. And all of these things just got, I can keep them in check when I'm, you know, not when my whole waking hour doesn't revolve around like getting more little orange pills. And then the, I already think like, I'm sort of like, prone to enthusiasm, maybe mania. I mean, like I, I sleep so much. I sleep like 12 hours a day every day. So like, I don't like, if anything, I, I sleep too much. Um, so maybe mania is not the right word, but, but I, what I'm trying to say is that Adderall didn't make me a, into a monster that I never was. It just brought out all the monstrous traits I already had in me. And I would love to address more in a future book the interplay of like, I don't think that Adderall kept me from writing the book. Let me be very clear. What Adderall did was it helped me not get out of that book deal with more grace and compassion and empathy. But instead, I just absolutely set the city of that book deal on fire, left, And was just haunted for years by, like, how poorly I'd behaved. And so, like, it really was, like, one of the reasons I self-published this was I've been approached by publishers countless times over the years because, obviously, there's still a demand for Caroline Calloway. But I just knew that if I even had a a well-meaning email pop up in my inbox asking me for pages from a publisher from who I'd already accepted money. Just thinking about it makes me want to have a fucking panic attack. Like I actually like feel my pulse quickening. I had by, I had created a new problem for myself around not writing the book because I just felt so full of shame and regret and um, sadness and self-loathing for how I'd handled it. And that took years to work through. And just when I felt like I was quitting the Adderall and had finally worked through it, you know, Natalie's article dropped and then my father died. And then it took like another three years to fucking work through that. I just have one question and I don't know that this is a fair question, but if you had a lot of guilt and shame and fear around taking like a publisher advance or working with a publisher, again, do you have any problem taking pre-orders from people for a book that then took several oh, years big time. to come out. I actually really shot myself in the fucking foot with that one because then I had their money and I had by, by thinking to myself oh I'll never work with a publisher sorry my cat keeps knocking my charger out I'll never work with a publisher I'm gonna find a way around it even if it's more difficult I'm gonna fucking do things on my own and I'm going to get away from this whole triggering situation then I find myself back in it. I, I couldn't breathe sometimes. And then that just added to like, you know, it definitely, the position I'd put myself in definitely did not do anything to quicken the healing process of getting over my dad's suicide and the public shaming of Natalie's article and getting me back into a place where I could write, especially because, you know, when I originally sold Scammer and I say this in the book, the whole... When I first sold Scammer, I was still in debt to the publishers and I was looking for a way to be able to pay them back. But they owed 
owned everything in my life, all things that had happened to me up until the year 2015. So I could write a book for them. or I mean, I could write a book for the world, but I just could not use any Cambridge was off the table. So I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll write a book about how 2019 was the worst year ever. I went viral as a scam twice. Best friend sold me out. Father killed himself. And I'll just write about this one year and I'll sell this book, earn back the money. Obviously the pandemic hit a plot about how 2019 was the worst year ever became so fucking irrelevant for at least several, at least 10 years. And so then I was at a loss and I just felt so anxious and stupid and full of self-loathing again. Cause I was like, look, you, you dumb fucking cunt. How did you get yourself in this situation again? Like that plot won't work. You can't write about your, your anything, anything until 2015. And like, now you have people's money. So yeah, I felt terrible about it. And it was, but I'm glad that I came up with the idea of the luxury $65 edition because it feels great giving all the people who did wait so long, this like free present as a thank you, you know, and I'll, I'm fulfilling the orders in chronological order as another way to um, just sort of prioritize people who waited and to thank them first. I feel that anybody who bought the pre-order, like what they were buying into was almost the right to be able to be like, and I've been screwed over. I think they got the ticket price by getting to say for two and a half years at parties, I paid for that book and it never showed up. And I'm just another victim of the Caroline Calloway scam. I think that that in itself is the memento that people like they got their money's worth. <laughs> That's what they well, wanted. I'm glad that they'll also get a, now they'll also get a book, but I just, I'm saying in defense of you in a way you may or may not appreciate. I'm like, yeah, those people, <laughs> they got what they deserved. Whether there no, was a book they or didn't. Not. <laughs> what they deserved is a book, and they will be getting it literally starting this week. The other thing I wanted to say about addict me and current me, back on that topic, mm-hmm. and how like Adderall brought out my worst traits. It took me many years to realize that Natalie was incredibly manipulative to me. I mean, she, our whole friendship was me apologizing to her. And I didn't realize how much she was just seeing me, not as a person, but as a resource to milk for money until, you know, she tried to really leverage how lonely and sad I was with my dad's suicide to get me to sign that Ryan Murphy deal where I would get 15,000 and she would get 1 million. Like she, you'll read the book. There's a chapter where the day I find out about my dad's suicide, we talk for the first time and she basically offers me absolution and forgiveness and friendship at a time when I've just, you know, I'm very, very lost and sad. And something else that made me realize how manipulative she had been with me is I'm still fucking friends with every other single person from that time in my life. Like, yeah, I was a shitty friend, but like no one made me feel like, just the most evil person who owed them tens of thousands of dollars in return for my behavior. I I messed up a lot during my Adderall years. I'll be the first to admit it. I was the worst version of myself. But, you know, maybe I wasn't ever the demon that she forced me to believe I was in order to give her my money. I was going to say one thing I think your book does extremely successfully, even without some of I think that there are some like fun jabs and like fun is not like fun necessarily, but like some kind of scathing 
lines about Natalie. I think one thing your book does very successfully is to showcase who she was in your friendship. And like there, the paragraph about her calling you after your father's suicide, I think really just like nails in the coffin is like, okay, this was who she was in the relationship. I think that, you know, especially when you're in your early twenties, like I think you guys were both two flawed people and she, it like, it kind of takes her entire the cut essay and like turns it upside down. I think in a very also I just reread the cut way. essay that she wrote, and it's funny because it is in there. Like I think she even has a specific line where she says, "When I met Caroline Calloway, I knew that my life wasn't interesting, but hers would be someone I wanted to write about." And she says it a few times, but I think people were so invested in hating you at the time that they gloss over that. But I think in retrospect, after reading your perspective, it's easy to go back in and see the real dynamic there. I also will say personally. I feel that in my relationships, I'm more of a Caroline than a Natalie. And so I really related to that sense of like, okay, maybe I'm louder and shinier, but like I also was hurt. The type of person who would rather be told I'm sorry than I love you. I thought that, yeah. that was actually great writing and really- I, I loved you. I loved you that whole time. And like, I was just what? Like your cash cow that you silently, seethingly hated? Well, like what the fuck? There's a type of person who allows you to hurt them unknowingly so that they can like gather these rocks to throw back at you and be like, well, look what you did. And you're like, well, how exactly. did I know? The Amsterdam thing, like she made that into such a big deal. And for years afterwards, she would bring that up every, like every time we spoke, she'd bring that up. Like the, at the most minor inconvenience, she'd be like, and she'd do it in like a really passive aggressive way. Like, hope this isn't in another Amsterdam, like, haha, like, just like, just always throwing it in my face that like, I went home with the keys. Girl had $18,000 in her bank account. And I know this because I had just cut that check for her. And like, she what couldn't find a hostel in downtown Amsterdam. Like, I know it's not ideal. But like, at a certain point, like she chose to like shiver in a bus stop all night, like she had and she, I, mean, yeah, we, I think her- we agree. We think what you yeah. did was selfish, but also at some point you need to then say, okay, what are my options? She can't, she couldn't subsist solely on what you gave her. She needed to be a person who stepped into herself. Also, there's also the other thing where like, if she felt that what you did that night was so unforgivable, then she needed yes. to not forgive you and walk totally. away instead of like throwing it in your totally. face for a decade. Like that is, I think, I think that like both of you were like oh, a little bit totally wrong, wrong the day so of, careless and just, but like, I think just, yeah, not out at all is is selfish is a great word for it it was so selfish and reckless of me but like it also just like but like dumb and reckless of her to to respond the way i don't know not not to respond the way she did but to spend the night outside like a very (laughs) twisted way yeah but um what's the other rapid fire questions and then oh so i feel i mean as you've said i think you want this book to stand the test of time i think you're very careful about aligning yourself with like um, masters of crafts throughout history. You then seem to throw it all away by obsessively discussing the dime square couple months of your life and name dropping people who I think you're taking quite a risk hoping become household names. Do you assume that you just like have your finger on the pulse and that dime square group of people will become important historically, or do you not care? If in 30 years, we look back and go, what the fuck was she even talking about here? Will you feel that you have failed as a writer? Like, what kind of risk are you taking here by making such a big deal out of those people? Because they are a group of people that matter to about 20 other people. <laughs> um, I disagree. 
Okay. Um, about how much they matter. Like all of my like friends in London care about Dime Square. Like I think the cultural reverberations are, and like now you know whenever like not European rich kids come to New York, like they want to go to Dime Square, even though I know it's sort of over in New York now, I think that the cultural reverberations will be felt for quite some time. And in terms of including their names, honestly, I just included my friends. It it wasn't about um, having read the Warhol diaries and seeing how many footnotes Andy Warhol needed. I mean, he's, he's including 10 people a page first and last name no one knows the names of now like and i interesting because you named that in your book you say specifically i don't want a warhol diaries where there has to be footnotes about who these people are but then you are still taking a chance that dime square will not be a footnote so i think you answered my question you do see it as you think you're calling it i think dime square will be a little thing that's remembered not unlike you know i don't know limelight or just okay. like these okay. passing iconic New York City cultural Not Studio Fifty Four, but a limelight. I think somewhere in between the two, honestly. Ooh, okay. I think oh, I think big, it's bigger than one club, smaller than Studio Fifty Four. You know. So I mean, you mentioned this just now in our conversation that your love for Natalie be- was a romantic love that you loved her. Was this something that you knew when you guys were? friends when you guys were existing in your friendship or is it something that came to you as you were writing this book is it something that came to you recently where did this romantic love for Natalie like when did it emerge because I don't feel that we've seen it in any of the previous like like you said the written public back and forth between you two I don't feel that we've seen it yeah honestly it I've known the, the the journalist or Lily Analik. She's amazing. I call her the journalist in the book. She's the one who did the Vanity Fair piece, which really started this like tipping point of press with you know Rolling Stone and the Daily Telegraph and Glamour magazine. And she wrote this big profile. And she one of the only things I think she only got a few things about me wrong. We knew each other for a year and a half, and I think she's so smart and so brilliant. But she mentions that she started calling my essay, I am Caroline Calloway, a lesbian Gothic. Um, and that I started calling it a lesbian Gothic. This must've been like a, a year, year and a year and a quarter ago that I started calling it a lesbian Gothic to like appease her and to like manipulate her to like make her like me more. Like I would change myself to be who she wanted me to be. And that's so inaccurate. Honestly, I she called it a lesbian Gothic. And I thought about that shit nonstop for a week. And I really went over all the strange moments that like, and you know, this was, um, I know this sounds so dumb to have a place of like self-revelation, but like it really wasn't until I got on like by TikTok and also like uncertain by girl TikTok where like women were talking about their experiences and the nervousness they felt around dating girls and just how complicated it was to uh, like, reconfigure your own internal identity. So I'd been going through that for a year. And then when she said that, I started going through all the moments where we had just, you know, how she gave me $200 to buy a vibrator, how like the first essay I turned in for our creative writing class was like about uh, liking women, how the next essay she turned in after that was about vibrators, about how, um, you know, 
the stuff like being when she described her naked body in graphic detail that like just despite not like intellectually or emotionally wanting that like physically I was turned on by it because like emotionally and intellectually I never called the way the love I felt towards her romantic I said I love you every time we hung up but like I was absolutely sexually attracted to her and so I started calling the essay I am Caroline Calloway a lesbian gothic because I genuinely felt like I was learning something about myself and like exploring more of you know I just for so long I think something about being bi and being conventionally attractive to men and also being like having cutthroat ambition is like you know dating a woman will never catapult me closer to power than being in a heterosexual heteronormative relationship with a man will and it's just so easy to like it's the path of least resistance to just be complacent and coast along and like i like presenting femme guys like a femme presentation like i could just coast along on this forever like i i could have never and i like it i like i like men like i'm attracted to them i could have never i could have easily never had to like explore this part of myself if i didn't make the conscious effort to and so um about seeing that in the text i mean right now i'm dating only women i think it's something that i i explore it in the text to the best of my ability but like it's also something that i'm still like i'm 31 like i'm not like i'm still living through it i'm still like learning who i am and and i don't know for all i know like maybe i just like I don't even know where I fall on the spectrum. Maybe I think I like like men and women equally, but maybe I don't even maybe I like women more. And I I just have been calling what I feel towards men like an equal proportion because I've never let myself explore liking women. Anyways, so that's that's why you see more of it is because it's something I'm currently going through. Yes. It is a very heavily written into the narrative of your and Natalie's relationship in a way that like feels almost manipulative. Um, it feels manipulative. It feels like it's a bit of a diversion. And and I do feel like there are a lot of moments that stand alone on Natalie's part of her manipulating you. And then as a response to like kind of further hammer it home, you bring in your guys, like the romantic connection you felt on your side, which is... It, it did feel kind of obvious that this was something newer that you are exploring. And it it like there is something about it that leaps off the page because it doesn't feel present to the moment that you're writing about. Well, what it does is it changes this whole the whole power dynamic, which this book feels very clearly in defense of yourself re- regarding Natalie. Natalie was like, I was this meek, poor little girl who just got taken advantage of. And now it's like, are you kidding? I was in love with you. And that changes the power dynamic. And I have to read this quote and ask why you put it in there. Because again, I feel so much of this book is about you trying to be believed. And then you have this interesting passage about when you're in this nonfiction, you're meeting Natalie for the first time, you're talking, you're doing these sexual essays back and forth. You kind of imply that you guys are almost flirting with each other via nonfiction essay in this writing class. And so you talk about being a lesbian at boarding school, the gypsy days of Sappho. But the complex matter, fact of the matter was that I had a crush, didn't admit it to myself and wrote my Sappho in a fugue state. It wasn't even true. I never even felt that way in middle school. In a strange way, I rewrote 
my actual past for my nonfiction class instead of letting myself luxuriate privately in truer fictions about Natalie teaching me things about my body I still did not know myself. On some level, I guess my question for you as an author is, so you are now creating this whole narrative. The truth is the audience for this book has been consuming content about you and Natalie's relationship for years at this point. You are now writing this narrative where there's this whole new arc, this whole new piece of information that changes everything. You were in love with Natalie. The dynamic was not what it seemed. You were actually in the weaker position because of this unrequited crush. And you're telling us about it in a narrative that's being rewritten and including a story about a time you lied about being a lesbian to rewrite the narrative. Do you I, see how that makes it hard as a reader to believe you now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you know that Natalie is bi? Like she's also come out and as is bi. She? Yeah, she's she's publicly out as bi. We don't normally do an addendum like this, but we do feel like it's important to note that Natalie Beach's book, Adult Drama and Other Essays, is out now and there is no information or confirmation that she is not straight in her book on the internet or living anywhere publicly. And I... I really, really, really reject the idea that I'm trying to present my as this love is one sided. I no, really you didn't, but I, I will say I actually DM'd somebody that I know was a very close friend of Natalie's for years. I was like, "Is Natalie bi?" And they told me, "No, she's definitely straight." So that's where okay. that was coming from. Well, I know that she's bi because okay. in her book proposal, she wrote it down and circulated it professionally to publishers that in this new book that's coming out, she was going to, the proposal actually was like a lot different than what the book ended up being. The proposal was much more based on facts about me. She was like, I'm going to write about giving Caroline her first Adderall. I'm going to write about like my latent, I think this is a direct quote, latent bisexuality. There's a quote from her like actual book proposal that CAA sent out my latent bisexuality and like, I don't know how that affected our friendship. And so I very much, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's not even like I heard from a friend she's out. It's like, I saw the document that her agent sent out to um, all of New York. And I, yeah, I think that we were both in love and didn't call it what it was at the time. And I really don't see myself as being in a position of, in that sense, like in terms of like loving her, I don't think I, I'm, if you feel like I presented myself as like taken advantage of or manipulated, then that's uh, my failing as a writer. No, I don't feel you presented yourself that way. I was talking about as a, you know, this lasting relationship, there is a, who was the worst person. It does yeah. feel like it helps balance things if you weren't this alpha dog and she was just following you around if the truth was the whole time you were looking back at her lovingly. Yeah, well, that is the fucking truth. I was looking back at her lovingly. And like, she was like, she was elected captain of the women's soccer team. Like that's a leader position voted on by your peers. Like she was like varsity NYU women's soccer captain. Also, so lesbian of her i wish we were in our glennon doyle abby wambach era right now who knows maybe in the multiverse somewhere we are but um but she i mean she her aunt was editor-in-chief of o magazine she's like a writing nepo baby she got her first job from her parents she lives in new haven her sister went to yale my house that i grew up in could fit inside easily like her mansion in new haven and like i'm 
I think that's something that's like really hard but for even me. What you're doing right now, you hear it, you're, you're saying, that's what I'm saying. It all comes back to the power dynamic is not what she claimed. Yeah. But the per- which, which I think is clearly illustrated and then like unclearly illustrated by this like new narrative yeah. that didn't feel present in the moment that it was presented in. I feel sometimes when we talk that you are just like, I feel like you fundamentally don't believe me when I talk about myself. And that is something that as I get older, I want to be better at tolerating because like, if I always wait for everyone else to like, believe me when I talk about what turns me on or how, what my sexuality is like, I'll be waiting for a long time and very unhappy during it. I, whether or not you choose to believe me, I feel like I had a lot of repressed thoughts during that time um, that I am only now exploring at 31. I mean, like I literally, I, I themed this whole book from beginning to end around the leitmotif of like having never had any sexual pleasure with men. And like, I really feel like there's a lot of my sexual attraction and sexual pleasure and just general sexuality that like I have put off um, exploring because honestly, I've just had other things that I have to deal with. And if you think that I'm like queer baiting, which just feels like what's you're implying, um, that I am not attracted to women, that this is something I'm doing retroactively. You are free to think that I see the neat parallel that you're drawing between like, Oh, so you submitted writing to your creative workshop class at 21 to try to flirt with this girl in writing in a way that you really couldn't do in person, not just because I didn't accept it in my head, but because there was so much less, um, pressure. Like, you know, if I said something flirty to her in person, how would you play that off? But like, if it's an essay and especially like if it's untrue, I could always reveal that to her and be like, you know, I I don't even know why I wrote that. It's not even true. Like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Did that freak you out? Like I, I literally didn't even think that in middle school. So like, I don't even know why I did that. Like I'm so silly and goofy sometimes. And like, for me, like, lying about that then was very much part of why it was flirting and why it was so safe to do it in that way. And if you want to not believe me and say that it's, you know, proof that I'm lying now, go for it. (laughs) Think whatever you want. It's hard as a reader to say the first time I wrote about my attraction to women, I was lying. And that is how you introduce your now attraction to women that is like being it it felt like retroactively written into the story well i i think so and i will say i want to also say it does not at all feel to me that you are lying about attraction to women and i i really like regret that it comes off that way but i do feel that it felt like the romantic aspect of the relationship with natalie was turned up for the narrative. Yeah, I um I I I see that. I see that much more I, and I appreciate you clarifying that. I do think I focused on it. It it is turned up for the narrative not in the sense that like I never like there is no frilled collar 
impressionistic exaggeration in any of those moments. Like those are the sort of moments that you have, you can't, you can't change one little detail. You have to get it right. Essential for the plot. But I think your instincts are right because like, you know, I only had 150 pages, 50 pages, even though I went over. And like when you add up all the moments that we ever spent together, there is something unrealistic about writing about all of those and like leaving out the hours and days where like those that sexual tension wasn't present. So like that is very valid. And I did focus on those moments. But like, honestly, at this moment in time, like as a as a human being, and a writer, like, I'm just like very thinking a lot about women and fucking women. And it was just top of mind. And, um, and it was just also, I want to understand that part of myself better, because I haven't, I never examined those moments in the moment. So it's like, it's really is like my chance now to examine it. And also one more thing about the like, writing about something that didn't happen to me. I also say in those same chapters that like I was a liar then like I have a, a, a whole sentence that's like I was just a liar then and I can't emphasize this enough from like ages I would say even like 17 to like 24 I just like lied I just like lied all the time and that was just like how I was and it, it got it, it wasn't the same amount of lying I would say starting at like 17 or 16 it was a straight line down to the left of decreasing lies but um but like it also plateaued for years around like you know 21 22 by just learning to lie by omission like I start it's not that I faked going to those balls or I don't know you know waltzing those waltzes and those castly castles like that that happened I have the photos I was there but um but yeah I just like it's been a, a journey with me to sort of uh, decouple myself from like the world of fantasy that I lived in as a child. And I, I think I've done a good job. I think I feel very clear eyed and non-delusional, but like the fact of the matter is I wasn't always this connected to reality. And as I say in the book flat out, I was a bit of a liar then. I I'd probably say that in that same, like, if not that chapter, like the chapter before or right after it, like it is the New York chapters that I say that. So like, that's why I lied because I was yes. just a liar then. And I say that. Yeah. And I do want to say to your credit, it does come across like what you're saying now, the person who in the present is like thinking a lot about your sexuality and re-examining a lot of past moments. Like it does come across that way as a reader. It comes across as the person currently today writing it is like really in depth on these topics. And so I think that it then makes it a little bit complicated reading it as the past rewriting of a story to integrate those narratives as like yes, present thoughts. Yes. But the thing is, I just, you know, a lot of this book was, making the best, most beautifully written, transportive book that I could in response to the shittiness of like the reality of my reputation. And I totally admit that it's like, to quote myself about the two tank theory. It we lost her. Okay, we're back okay, on. As I was saying... And you can just clip this in. I agree that it does a disservice to the historical record to only focus on the moments of sexual tension when those moments didn't make up so much of our relationship. But that is all 
of what I remember that I was going to say. So you're going to have to ask me another question now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One last hard question, but I do feel that you know that this is coming and you owe an answer. You have a passage in the book where Natalie describes a sexual assault and you re- and you talk about getting very turned on by it. You use language that is a lot harsher than anywhere else. It's the only time you use the word cunt in the book, I think. You say your cunt clenches with wetness, which is interesting because I think earlier in the book, you say you often get wet with men that you're not actually turned on by. But here it really signifies that there's something sexual happening. I mean, of course, you know that this was going to provoke and be upsetting. You're much more graphic about the description of her body in this part. How do you defend that? Why did you choose to do that? It is like, I think one of the few times in the book that what you do is like questionable morally. Yeah. You know, and I, I really thought about it a lot and I can't emphasize this enough. Like this is a secret that I kept until now. And if Natalie and I had just parted our separate ways, had a messy friend breakup, I would, as much as I feel like that moment was a really essential moment where like I could not deny like how my body was responding to like as much as because so much of this book is about internally denying how I feel about women intellectually in my brain stream of conscious emotionally just absolutely shoving that shit down but where my now with TikTok and with everyone it's so easy to to be exposed to by people, especially by women questioning their past and where they are. But honestly, back in like 2014, there just wasn't that fucking conversation. Like if you weren't actively seeking out lesbian porn, like you weren't going to see naked women without the male gaze, which is like really what that moment was, her talking about it just for me. It wasn't, you know, a game of thrones with gratuitous nudity by a male director like it was really um yeah it was it was female nudity totally detached from the male gaze and i was physically turned on by it but you know writing about that would hurt natalie because you know i think that's a hurtful thing for someone to say about your sexual assault and had we just broken up as friends who were in love with each other, um, I would have taken that secret with me to the grave. I really would have. And, you know, like everything else, you can choose not to believe me about that. Um, But I would have. I know I would have. And I would have put aside writing about a moment that was really important to me and that could be important to other women um, who... You know, I think for a lot of women who came of age before TikTok, I don't think it's that uncommon to first realize that you were attracted to women in a really uncon in a moment that ranges from anywhere from just plain unconventional to fully fucked up. And like, obviously, for me, it fell on the spectrum of fully fucked up. Um, But I wouldn't have written about that just out of respect to her. You know, after she really like took credit for my work, erased my addiction from the record, put me through this like public shaming and then tried to like exploit my father's suicide to like get paid. Like, I honestly just felt I don't owe her anything. I don't owe her my silence. 
to prioritize her feelings over my feelings of what I want to write about and an experience that could be meaningful to other by girls and make them feel less ashamed maybe of the moments when they felt attracted to women. Um, and, you know, I write about my own sexual assault in the book. It's not like I've unfamiliar with what it's like to be like raped by a guy. Um, so I do feel like I was able to like really think about accurately, like what that would mean for hurting Natalie and weigh that against what she's done in her writing to hurt me and whether or not, you know, I felt like morally it, I owed her, I owed her anything. And I just mm -hmm. felt, you know, I don't owe her anything. I just don't owe her anything. I guess my second question then, because I did feel that obviously it's a fucked up situation, but I think that there's ways to talk about fucked up situations. And we talk about this a lot, like, how the language shows respect. I did feel that something about the phrase topless and abused body, my cunt clenched, it felt gratuitous to me in a way that like it didn't have to be. And then when I coupled it with how you talked about your high school roommate, who was nothing but a noun, who was introduced with giant boobs, it felt like you were dehumanizing the women an inch. Did, did you feel that? Or how do you feel about the way you talked about your high school roommate? Can I say one other thing in addition to like, tying in what you said just now to say that this was the first time you felt that you have like the first time that you felt that you had really heard of like a female sexual situation that was not under the male gaze, but you are talking about a body that had recently been abused by men. You're talking about a body that is in the wake, a body that exists in the wake of male violence as outside of the male gaze. And I find that very interesting. And I think it, it kind of ties into Claire's question. Yes. When I, and I can't emphasize enough, like, and I say this in the writing, like tears are streaming down my face, mm -hmm. even as I feel myself getting wet. And like, I didn't ask my body to get wet. That's not a voluntary thing that happens. It was like fully with outside of my control and all the things that like were things that I could control, like my own thoughts and what I said to Natalie in the moment, I think were spot fucking on for how, mm -hmm a empathetic, loving friend would respond. I listened to her. I, I, I was there for her. I, I feel like I really, you know, I, I say that it was like one of the last times I was a really good friend to her. Like I was shocked at how able I was to um, like step up into that moment. And just like, I, I literally remember like pinching myself sometimes to just like focus on the pain in my upper arm to just like not get lost on like a whizzing roller coaster zoom of Adderall thoughts to just like stay in the present moment. Caroline, I want to clarify, we're not judging how you reacted. We're not judging yeah. you for getting turned on. We're talking about the exact language that was used in this and so, paragraph. Yeah, I honestly, I wanted to make this book really graphic. And, you know, I talk about my roommate's double Ds, but I also talk about her, you know, tenderly pushing my hair back. And I talked about like my clent clenching, my clent clenching involuntarily. Um, when Natalie told me this, but I also talk about like weeping with her. And I do think that there are moments where I de dehumanize um, partners in moments of heightened sexual arousal, but 
I, it would be unfair not to do it to women because I do it all the fucking time to men. I talk about sucking their cocks and sticking their fingers inside of me and, you know, the conveyor belt of headless pen dolls and all these dumb, illiterate men who can't fucking read, who I don't respect. And I, if anything, I don't think I like, I think I was a little unequal in how absolutely like dehumanizing I was to men versus like how three-dimensional the female characters are. So I really just don't think it's like something that I did towards women in that book at all. I think it's something that I tried to do um, towards sex because like, even though I've never had an orgasm, like I do get so turned on and like, I do get so wet. And you said something earlier that I didn't correct you on because it just seemed like not the time or like a point worth rehashing you like you say that you get like so wet with these men who don't turn you on but that's not true I just like gets I just like love sex and I for me sex is a really like um even though I've never come it's like a really um zoomed in primal narrowing state of mind where it's cunts and clenching and wetness and it's just really not about um morality Mm -hmm. i I think those other things sort of um fade away and that is just my experience of sex but i i just think just because i tried to um express that in moments i just i think like let us let the jury know that like i i also expressed like moments of the opposite of that and i was more tender towards the female characters than anyone else and i think that i handled that moment with language that both um gave voice to how emotionally intellectually upsetting that was and also uh, like how um physically arousing it was to hear her um she just you know i was very careful in that section i actually reread her section in the cut and i was careful not to include any details that natalie hadn't already publicly put on the record um, so I don't want to say anything here now about like describing that phone call and what she said to me that I goes beyond that. Cause I, I was very careful about that wording in the book, but I'll just say that like the way she described it was like very graphic and arousing. And that's what I, that's what I say in the book. And it's true. Ashley, I mean, do you have any other final questions? I feel like I don't think so. And I do want to say, I know that this came across as very like targeted, but we, the reason we had specific questions is because our question was not like, why did you write a book? You shouldn't have our question was like, we enjoyed this book. And there are a lot of details that jumped out to us that we wanted further explanation on. I just want to say, I thought it was a great book. I genuinely recommend it. I think you're a goofy bitch. I cannot believe you have not been broken by this world yet, but God bless to everyone who thinks you're evil. I think they're crazy. We have defended you. We do not think you deserve the hate you get. And I hope that this helps. (laughs) Yeah. And I look forward to our next dinner and play so that from from now on, I can say plural. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for giving us all this time. I hope you guys enjoyed. Check out her book, Scammer, on sale, one specific place. Is that correct? CarolineHolloway.com. You cannot find this anywhere else. <laughs> Nowhere where books are sold. <laughs> if, if they're not actually selling books in that store, I can guarantee you Scammer is not there. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. Bye.